oftentimes when we turn to God's word, we walk through a certain section of scripture verse by verse. What we're going to do this morning and for the next several weeks is we are going to use what we just heard in God's word from Matthew chapter 1 as a springboard to look at different passages of scripture. So even though we looked at Matthew 1, we're going to walk through Matthew chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, and then the gospel of Luke to see the implications of what we just heard. This simple but profound truth that God is with us. Now, as we have been studying Daniel, many of us, we truly do wonder what it must have been like to be Daniel inside the den of the lions. Now, none of us would want to actually be in the den. Oh, but to see God close the mouth of these large, powerful, ravenous, angry lions as a sign of his providential power, many of us would be amazed. In fact, when we read through Scripture, and Scripture is filled with story, it's filled with history, it's filled with poetry, it's filled with laws and commands, it's filled with all kinds of different interesting bits of information, including miracles. And oftentimes when we come to a miracle in Scripture, there's something about it that just captures our imagination. It gets our attention. But I would submit to you that all the miracles in the Bible, there's probably one, if not a couple, that are the most significant for the body of Christ. I mean, many of us would want to see Moses standing on the bank of the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army charging down on him. And then all of a sudden, as he raises the staff to see the waters part and God's people travel to safely to safety on dry ground. We would be in all of that, right? Amen. How many of us would be amazed by seeing manna rain down from heaven? Literally, as God's people are traveling through the desert wasteland on the way to the promised land to see God on a daily basis create this food and this sustenance, we would be in awe. Whether it's the Old Testament or the New, perhaps we've heard the story of Jesus walking on water and we put ourselves in that boat and we wonder what it must have been like to see Christ, not just prophet, but Lord of creation, doing something that our minds can't comprehend, but our eyes can't deny, we would be in awe. Or when Jesus multiplies the bread and the fish so that everyone could feast and find food, we would be astounded. I would submit to you that part of the reason we're slowing down to focus on this one name for Jesus, Emmanuel, is because we need to remember the true majesty of the incarnation. Can everyone say that word for me? Incarnation. Don't you just feel smarter saying it? It's a theological term that means, as the Gospel of John says, the word became flesh. God became man. Spirit took on flesh. Incarnate. When we come to Scripture, there's many miracles to be amazed by but I would submit to you that this is probably one of, if not the, most amazing miracle. Wayne Gruden puts it like this. He says, Christmas 
is by far the most amazing miracle in the whole Bible. Far more amazing than, listen, the resurrection and far more amazing than the creation of the universe itself. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to human nature forever so that infinite God could become one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. Amen. All right, now we're feeling like Christmas. Christmas is a beautiful holiday for many different reasons. There's a lot of sentimentality attached to it. And I'm a sentimental guy. I like sentimentality. Oh, but when we come to Scripture, it's not just sentimentality. It's majesty. It should lead us to not just settle for a typical Christmas. Christmas should not be reduced and defined by the culture around us. When we come and we hear the angels say, God is with us in Christ, we shouldn't just settle for business as usual. Because this is what can happen, right? We could celebrate with Christmas food, Christmas music, Christmas parties. You can go to an ugly Christmas sweater party and miss this profound truth. God is with you. God is with you, and not just in some generic sense, not in some religious abstract sense. No, God is with us in Christ. And when we see Christ, we see who God is and what God is about. As we just read in Isaiah chapter 7, centuries and centuries before the first Christmas, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Many of us, we tend to focus on the virgin birth, and as we should. Remarkable, amazing, but that's not the sign. The miracle always points to the message. The miracle points to the power and the nature of the sign. The Lord himself will give you a sign. And what's the sign? It's the Lord himself. So when people ask, is there a God? Who is God? What is God? What is God like? Does God have a gender? Is God created? There's plenty of questions. In our ever secularizing culture, everyone has a theory. Everyone has a YouTube channel. Everyone has a blog. But thank God we're not trusting in human speculation, but in divine revelation that God has broken forth into space and time. And what should a Christian's response be to, is there a God? We say, yes. What is God like? We say, Jesus. This is exactly the testimony of Scripture. Colossians chapter 1 puts it like this. Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus, all things were created, all things, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. 
What does that passage say? We should believe in a really, really big Jesus. Everything was created by him. Everything is sustained by him. Everything is made for him. So even as we are in awe of this baby that was born, we should also be amazed that the baby is proclaiming who God is. One author put it like this. Jesus is the king of kings, the radiance of God's glory, the Lord of the spaceless, fabulous, infinite universe, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, unspeakably holy, dwelling in light, unapproachable, and changeless. And yet, he condescended to be enclosed in lowly human flesh, to be born a despised Judean in a filthy stable, in the womb of a simple Israeli woman and without fanfare or pomp. This Christmas, we should be amazed at God's bigness, but also his closeness. The book of Hebrews puts it like this. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus holds the universe together by the word of his power. And not only does he hold the universe together by the word of his power, the Bible says he is in fact the word of God himself. The beginning of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what? Was God. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not made anything that was made. Everything that you see, touch, taste, hear, experience, no, created by Jesus and for Jesus. Wow. And we can settle, as much as I love these Christmas trappings, for just our cultural version of this sacred holiday? Not us, right, church? And not this year. Not my family, and hopefully not yours. What does it mean to be in awe of what the Bible proclaims, that God is with you And God is with us. So when we come to Christ, we learn who God is and what God's about. It answers that question. First and foremost, today we're going to focus on God is. Now, if you go, not just to the YouTube channels or you go to the different blogs or the Internet or to your friends at work when they're all just guessing and speculating about religious things, but even if you go to the major religions of the world, you're going to find that even this most basic, fundamental, and foundational question, is there a God, and what is that God like? You're going to see a multitude of different views, right? So, for example, in Hinduism, there's 330 million different gods that all kind of lead to the same place. Pick and choose. You could just add anything you want. Buddha left Hinduism, and he formed his own philosophy But even Buddha did not claim to know anything about God. So 330 million gods, agnostic about God, or in the monotheistic faiths, what do we see? We see Christianity proclaims a God of love who always has loved, meaning that God is divine 
and God is devoted. He is a divinity and he is family, father, son, and spirit. You compare that with how Muslims understand Allah. He is detached. He is holy. You can't understand if you're saved. You don't even know for sure if you're loved. But here's what's beautiful about Christianity. Father, Son, Spirit has been loving himself from eternity past. When God says and commands to love one another, that's just the overflow of who God is. You see, if God was just singular, then he hadn't been loving anyone or anything until he had an object of his love. So love necessitated creation. No, in Christianity, God is love, 1 John chapter 4, and God has been loving each other, Father, Son, and Spirit. So now when we love one another, when we desire community, when we crave family, when we long for connection, it's all because we're made in the image of a triune God. This is how we know God is through Jesus Christ. So, today we're going to focus briefly on three things that Jesus reveals about who God is. And we actually have sermon notes. So if you want to take out your bulletin, you'll look on the, uh, one of the pages on the sermon notes. There's three points. It's my gift to you. Merry Christmas. Okay, here we go. Number one. Briefly. Number one, God is committed to his word. Number one, God is committed to his word. Once again, if you want to know what God is about, we look to none other than Jesus Christ. And what do we see in Jesus' life? In Jesus' teaching. Jesus said God's word is inspired by God. God's word is actual history. God's word is reliable, sufficient, indestructible, points to himself, and is without error. He says that God's word is inspired in Matthew chapter 4. God's word is actual history in Matthew chapter 19. It is reliable, Matthew 26, sufficient, Luke 16, indestructible in the gospel of Matthew. It points to Jesus and is without error, Luke 24 and Matthew 22. Jesus had a really high view of God's word. In fact, he not only taught that, but listen, church, he lived it out. Jesus quotes Isaiah. It's quoted in Luke chapter 4 to begin his ministry, saying that this prophecy about the the Messiah has come to place in their presence, right? So he quotes Isaiah at the beginning of his ministry. He quotes Deuteronomy while being tempted by the devil himself in Matthew chapter 4. And then even as he is gasping his last breath with his hands and his feet nailed to a wooden Roman torture device, with a crown of thorns piercing his skull, with all of the whipping and the scourging on his back, Jesus quotes the Bible in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus not only believed in the truth and veracity of Scripture, he also showed in his vulnerability his need for Scripture, whether he was tempted or whether he was suffering. He spoke Scripture. And this should be convicting for us, because if the perfect Son of God not only proclaimed God's Word to be important, but also revealed his need for God's Word in his life, who are we to casually push this book aside 
and say, no, I'm good. I don't need it. I'm going to go by my own wisdom, by my own understanding, and by my own truth. Thank you very much. See, what, what happens is in Christian traditions, there's going to be some people in some traditions that say, well, I like Jesus a lot. I'm just not so sure how I feel about this. The reality is, is that if we have a casual relationship with the Bible, we're going to have a casual relationship with Jesus. If we have a low view of the Bible, don't be surprised when you have a low view of Jesus. Because in fact, if we don't have a high view of Scripture in our life, it actually reveals that our Jesus doesn't look like the Jesus of Scripture, but our Jesus looks a lot like us. He's just a reflection of our wants and our desires. Oh no, when you open the Bible, you're going to see that Jesus loves us. He meets us where we're at, in our muck, in our mire. Oh, but he is holy. You can't put him in a box. He's going to lovingly challenge, convict, and confront. If you want to turn in the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to look at this example of, once again, how miracles point to the message. If you're turning in your Bible, hopefully your Bible's still open, turn to Matthew chapter 8, verse 14, and we'll use this to illustrate what we just heard. I love the sound of Bible pages turning. It's like the flutter of angel wings. Matthew chapter 8, verse 14 says this, And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. Let's stop right there. What we see here is that Peter, or Jesus is in Peter's house in Capernaum. And as they are about to enjoy a meal, Peter's mother-in-law is sick. Jesus performs a miracle, heals this woman. She gets better and she does what? She serves. Now, this is an important excursus, an application for us. Many of us, we've asked God to meet us. We've asked God to forgive us. We've asked God to strengthen us. We've asked God to deliver us. And God does it. And then what happens? We forget him. We go back to our idols. We go back to our creature comforts. We go back to building our own kingdoms. Peter's mother-in-law was healed. And then she served. That is not only how it should be, but that is also an example of how to continually stay close to Jesus. If he's working in your life, figure out how to serve him. But in the end, that's not even the point of this passage. Listen, once again, even with the virgin giving birth to a child, the point isn't the virgin. The point is that the child fulfills scripture. The child reveals God. So this reveals something about God's word, even as Jesus heals, that God is committed to his word. The miracles always were to affirm the message, okay? So Jesus was born according to God's word. Jesus lived according to God's word. Jesus rose again according to God's word. Jesus will return again according to God's word. Jesus fulfills God's word, and Jesus is, in fact, the embodiment of God's word. Listen to how John Wenham puts it. 
to Christ, the Bible is true, authoritative, inspired. To Jesus, the God of the Bible is the living God, and the teaching of the Bible is the teaching of the living God. To him, what the scripture says, God says. That's Jesus' view of scripture. I like how Spurgeon put it, and this is such a great quote. He said, a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone whose life is not. Meaning that for those of us that are pouring over this book, reading this book, engaged in this book so often, the pages are falling out. We have duct tape keeping the binding together. A Bible that's falling apart is usually a sign of a life that's not. Jesus was committed to God's word. Number two. Number two, God is charitable towards the unlovable. Let's turn to Mark chapter 9. So go to the next book in the New Testament, the next gospel, the next account of Jesus' life, ministry, miracles, sacrifice, and resurrection. And what we're going to see here is an example of God's mercy towards those who many of us would be uncomfortable around. Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. I'm in Mark 9, verse 18. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams and he grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. He fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood, and has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Let's stop right there. I love what you're about to hear. You see a father whose son is being demon-possessed, so much so that it's leading to not only his son's physical harm, but also to his town's uh, religious discomfort. Meaning that people weren't sure what to do with a demon possession. They would pray. In fact, those that were ceremonially unclean, you weren't even supposed to be near. You weren't even supposed to engage with the lepers. You weren't supposed to engage with these people. And this father asks a question. He says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and heal us. And I love Jesus' answer. He's about to speak something that might seem a little bit, let's say, confident. But when Jesus knows who Jesus is, he can give this answer. Listen, I love this. And Jesus said to them, verse 23, if you can... All things are possible for the one who believes. Amen? This father says, if you can, show compassion. Jesus says, if I can. Christians, up here real quick. If he can. Oh, we have an Emmanuel problem. You understand that? 
if he can, if God is with us, who could be against us, right? All things are possible. And what happens here is that Jesus performs the miracle. Verse 25, Jesus saw the crowd coming, running together. He rebuked the unclear, unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. I love that. And after crying out and convulsing the boy terribly, the spirit came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. Jesus reveals God's compassion. Jesus reveals God's mercy. Jesus reveals God's charity towards those that the rest of us are uncomfortable with. What does it mean that when we were lost in our sin, when we were struggling, when we felt like lepers, when we perhaps were not physically and literally blind, deaf, mute, and paralyzed, that Jesus came and saved us. What does that mean? That was great news for us, was it not? Then perhaps we should look through the same lens for those in our lives that we deem unlovable. They make us uncomfortable. If we had a person with a demon-possessed child that entered into our church, what would be your reaction? Jesus and this father knew that love enters in to the chaos and that God has a special heart of charity to those that we would often ignore, disregard, and run away from. There is a depth of God's mercy. Listen to this quote. I love this quote by Richard Sibbs. He says, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Isn't that good news? There's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Romans puts it like this, where great or where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That when we see Jesus, we see God's heart and we see God's love. C.S. Lewis put it like this, he loved us not because we are lovable, but because he is love. Puritan writer John Owen put it like this, we are never nearer to Christ then we find ourselves lost in holy amazement at his unspeakable love. Amen? When's the last time, church, Christians, friends, family, you've been at loss, a loss for words, in light of God's unspeakable love? When's the last time it's quieted you, it's filled you, and it's filled your heart and your mind with a sense of awe and wonder. Now, I understand that our faith isn't a matter of subjective emotions. Our faith is a matter of reality and God's Word. So you're not a Christian today just because you feel like one, right? You're not a Christian today just because you're acting like a Christian today. No, those that are born again, filled with the Spirit, saved by God, you're a Christian on your best day and on your worst day. We need to return, though, and ask the question, have I been so caught up in a casual, cultural version of Christianity that it's been months, years, maybe decades where I have been in awe of the love of God for me? This Christmas, don't miss this. Number three, last point briefly. 
God is not only committed to his word, God is not only charitable toward the unlovable, God is uncompromising in his holiness. Let's turn to the Gospel of Luke, go from Christmas to Good Friday, turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verses 39 through 42. Gospel of Luke 22, starting in verse 39. Luke 22, starting in verse 39. God is uncompromising in his holiness. And Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. If you could put yourself in this position, and I know that we're flawed, fallible parents, fathers, but you have a son who is about to walk to the cross. You have a son who's perfect and holy, And he is about to pay a price that is unspeakably awful and evil for the unholy. Would you try to do anything and everything you could? Jesus cries out in a moment of amazing vulnerability. He is now in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, with the cross in full view, it's physical pain, it's emotional shame, this concept of him somehow being separated from the love of his Abba Father for the first time in eternity, and he cries out and says, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, God, take this cup, the cup of God's wrath, from me. And it's as if there is a still, quiet silence from heaven. And Jesus quickly responds, not my will, but your will be done. What's the implications of this? Jesus asks, is there another way? And God quietly says, there is not. God is entirely holy, perfect. There is no spot. There is no blemish. There is nothing unholy about him. And for him to have fellowship, union with those that are lost in sin, there is no other way. He cannot compromise who he is. God is holy. And that's why we needed Christ's perfect life. We needed Christ's substitutionary death. We needed Christ's victorious and vicarious resurrection because God is holy. And that is the only way to be reconciled back to him. In the Garden of Gethsemane and in the life of Christ, we see that God takes holiness very, very seriously. So, this Christmas, it is right and good to ask, are there areas of my life where I have coddled sin, I've tried to control sin, I've tried to manipulate sin, thinking that somehow sin would serve me? The reality is, sin doesn't serve anything but destruction. This Christmas, would you be amazed at the veracity of God's word? This Christmas, 
Would you truly understand the depth of God's love? But this Christmas, especially as we come to the Lord's table, would you turn from sin, return to the Father, because he is forever holy. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray even now that you would take the seed and the truth that is your word and bury it deep in these wonderful people's hearts, that they wouldn't miss this opportunity, opportunity to turn and to return, to turn from sin, to turn from self, to turn from the world and its ways, the enemies and his lies, and return back to a father who loves them, a son who died for them, and a spirit that can make them alive forever. If that's you and you know that you need to return back to God, if that's you and you know that you have trampled God's word, if that's you and you know that you want to know just how much he loves you, would you cry out to him now for mercy, even before you come to the table? Would you come to the cross and confess your sin? If you need words to pray, just say this simple prayer with me. Heavenly Father, I want to know that you're real and that you love me. You are a holy God, and I am a sinner. Please forgive me of my sin. Say this to him. Please fill me with your spirit. And please help me follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.